Awesome. Good morning, everybody. We're going to have a look at that passage today and keep going with this series called The Servant. And I think, yeah, relevant to that passage and relevant to this time of year, it's, it's worth reminding ourselves that in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes, famously said by Benjamin Franklin. And the story we're looking at today is a story about death and taxes, and obviously this week will be the end of financial year, so it just worked out to be quite relevant timing, um, and uh, all the accountants are ready for a new year, which is awesome. And um, yeah, but we're going to look at this, this story uh, where Jesus predicts his death again and then is asked this question about taxes. So I might just pray quickly and then, then we'll start to have a look together. So we thank you, Father, for um, yeah, your word. Thank you, Jesus, yeah, for your life and your, your death. Thank you for the gift of the Spirit. Um, give this opportunity to open ourselves to you. We just ask you to speak to us and, and meet us and renew our minds. And yeah, we just offer this time to you in your name, Jesus. Amen. So just a really quick recap of, of how we got here. Then, then we're going to look at this passage today, but uh, we're, we're sort of going to do a bit of an overview of the passage and go through it and then pull a bit of more of a principle. And then we're going to look at the principle a bit, bit more widely in Scripture. So we're going to look around some other places and then spend a bit more time thinking about what it, what it means for us today as well. So it might be a little bit different today. Um, but just before this, the last couple of weeks of this um, series, we've seen how Jesus has gone up the mountain um, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago and was transformed or transfigured into his true nature uh, of the glory of God. And, and Peter and James and John saw Jesus and, and this cloud came over and God the Father affirmed Jesus as God's son. So Jesus is affirmed for who he is. When, when there's been so much confusion that people have had in Matthew's gospel about who he is, but, but God says who Jesus is and he is the Messiah, he is his son. But then they come down the mountain, and we looked at last week, they get plunged back into the reality of a world of evil and suffering and doubt and unbelief, and, and Jesus has to address that, and with his power is able to heal a boy, and even talks about um, the power of even a small amount of faith. That's kind of where we've been the last couple of weeks, so now we come to this passage in verse 22. It says, when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. So just before this sort of recent section we've been going through is when Jesus first predicted his death. He, he, his disciples are starting to realize he is the coming king, he's the promised savior, he's the son of God, but then he starts to talk about dying, and it doesn't make any sense. They're confused. And he again reminds them here that Jesus is the Son of Man, but he's going to be delivered into the hands of men, but he will be raised to life. And Jesus uses this term, the Son of Man, um, which can just mean that he's a man, but it also is a reference to this prophecy of um, this messianic figure who would be a king, whose kingdom would reign forever. So if Jesus is that king, a king whose uh, kingdom will never fail, it's like he shouldn't be killed, right? He should live forever. He's a king who will live forever. So, and we actually know Jesus is the Son of God. Um, he is God in the flesh. He has been affirmed by the Father. And actually, Jesus is free from the need to die. Jesus could not die if he didn't want to, right? We see that so many times. Jesus could, could defend himself with armies of angels, even as we heard before in communion, Jesus is the one person who's innocent of sin. 
He's the one person who's not deserving of death. And if he is this, this king who will live forever, if he's God, he's the one person that does not need to die. Yet, he predicts and says he will. He will be delivered into the hands of men. And it's, it's, yeah, it's something that he doesn't have to do, but it's something that he will do. Even though he's free from the need to die, Jesus will lay his life down and he will embrace death for the sake of love. It's an interesting kind of play on words even here in this passage. It's, it's this idea that he's the son of man, but he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. He will be handed over, and he will give himself over, even though he will be also betrayed. He's a king, but he's going to be killed. He's God, but he's going to die. These things that would not normally go together. He's powerful, but he will become weak. He's the ruler, but he will become a servant, and he does it willingly. But the story and his prediction even doesn't end there. He will be raised back to life. In these few verses, right, Jesus says this. He's the son of man. He's the king whose kingdom will never end, but he will willingly be handed over and die, and then God will raise him back to life. And he says this is what's going to happen. He, he knows it, and he will embrace it. Yet the disciples can't really hear it yet. Um, and there is grief associated with this. The passage said that they were grieved deeply, and there is grief. Like, there will be loss. Jesus will lose his life. They will lose their, their savior and their, their, their king, their friend. But it's not hopeless. There's hope. There's resurrection. But the disciples can't seem to see that yet. They're just stuck on the death and the suffering that will come. So there's kind of a principle here, right? Jesus doesn't need to die. He's free, yet willingly will lay down his freedom, embrace death, and yet God will raise him life. So there's kind of a principle and a progression there that I see in this next passage as well. So we're going to kind of build on this as we go through. So Jesus predicts his death, and then we go to this, this question about the tax. It says, after this, uh, is that the wrong one? No, no, sorry. I got confused. I don't have that here. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was, no, no, I've missed the passage. I will... I've got it here. Sorry about that. Let me just read it out. I changed my slides a lot this week. (laughs) Missed a spot. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your Peter pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. The next one now. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes, from their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered, then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. So Jesus gets asked, or Peter gets asked, does Jesus pay this tax? And his response is yes, straight away. Um, and, but then when he comes into the house, Jesus kind of almost confronts him on that and sort of ends up saying No. He doesn't have to pay the tax. Jesus claims tax exemption. Maybe it's his tax-free threshold. Um, but obviously not, we see in this, this passage. Um, but but it, it's interesting, because some of the background around this um, tax is a bit controversial even, it seems. It, it's not really exactly clear where this tax comes from in Scripture. There's a, there's a reference to 
Uh, maybe the, the census tax in Exodus, but that didn't seem to be a yearly tax. In Nehemiah, they seem to um, start to tax people or willingly tax people to start working on the temple some more. Um, but it could potentially be a bit controversial as to whether God even wants um, his people to be taxed in this, in this way. So, and, and some people may not have paid the tax all, all the time. Rabbis were exempt. Um, some people might even rebelled against it. And it's interesting as well because Jesus uh, has some controversy with the temple. And ultimately, he will be killed because he says that he will tear down the temple later on. So Jesus, and Jesus drives out people from the temple. So in some ways, this question is a little bit linked to how does Jesus, does Jesus affirm the temple or not? And Peter's initial response is, yes, he does. And we don't know why that was, but he, but he says that he does. But Jesus says, no, he's exempt. Jesus and Peter, he says, are free, are exempt from the temple tax. Uh, he used this, this analogy to, to show this. He says, uh, kings don't tax their children. If you're in the royal family, you don't, your dad isn't going to tax you. And, and Jesus is here again making a claim to his divine authority as the son of God and saying, well, the temple, like he said when he was a son and uh, when a child, he said, the temple's my father's house. So if his father's not going to tax him, so Jesus is exempt from paying this tax. And Jesus also includes Peter and the other disciples in this and, and in effect calls them sons. The, the sons are free. So he doesn't have to pay. Jesus and Peter are free. But then the next passage says, but so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, mouth and you'll find a four drachma coin, take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. So the principle is if you can't pay the tax, go fishing. So, <laughs> no, it's a very strange story. This is this is one of the strangest stories commentators say in the Bible, or in the New Testament at least, and I'm not going to do a deep dive in, into it because it's, it's quite strange. Um, but what we see first is that Jesus doesn't want to cause offense. Now, is Jesus afraid to cause offense? No. He's already offended lots of people. There's even been a time in the past where his disciples said, hey, do you know you offended the Pharisees? And Jesus doesn't seem bothered. But Jesus doesn't want to offend people. He, he will stand on the truth, and if it's offensive, that's okay. But if there's things that he can sort of, doesn't, doesn't need to make a big deal of, or they're secondary issues, like as much as possible, he will not offend. The word offend here means stumbling block. Jesus doesn't want to put stumbling blocks in people's way. He doesn't want to get people offside. And in this case, this particular tax, even though perhaps it's kind of linked to some allegiance to the temple and, and so forth, and maybe some people would say, well, if you're free, why would we spend our money? Why would we pay for it if we're free? Or, or why would we affirm the temple when we're against what's going on in the temple? But Jesus is saying, no, this is a secondary issue. And actually, we, we don't want to cause offense. We don't want to put unnecessary stumbling blocks in people's way. So Jesus is actually free from this tax, yet he will lay down his freedom for the sake of love. And Peter does as well. And the, the story of the fish is obviously really quite strange. It doesn't actually say what happened. It just says what Jesus told Peter to go and do. There's lots of different views as to what actually happened. But I think what, what's clear is it's the story of God's provision in this 
um, need to pay this tax. And in some ways, it's a story, uh, it's a, a stamp of approval of God's approval on this posture of laying down his exemption, his freedom for the sake of not causing offense and the sake of loving. That Peter and Jesus experienced God's provision in this issue of the temple tax. Now, we, we kind of talked about Jesus' prediction of his death, which is a big thing, right? Jesus is free from the lean to die, yet he'll lay down his life and God will raise him. But this principle is even here in this smaller issue of this temple tax and Jesus' desire not to offend. He's free from the tax, yet for the sake of love, he lays down that freedom and he pays it with Peter. Um, he, he submits to it for the sake of love and not causing offense, yet God provides through this, this crazy story of the fish. And I think this principle that I want to kind of pull, we see in both of these stories, is so true in Jesus' life in many ways. And in a lot of ways, is, a really, is really key for us because it's a redefinition of freedom and what freedom is for. Because freedom is such an important thing in the Bible, and freedom is such a high value even in our culture and our society. But it's so important that we see what true freedom is as characterized by Jesus. There's this beautiful poem that, that summarizes Jesus' life in Philippians 2, and it follows this exact same pattern. It's a pattern of the true use and practice of freedom. In Philippians 2, it says of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or something to be grasped. Actually, Jesus existed before he walked the earth. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He's a part of the Trinity. Jesus is actually the most free, right? You can't get more free than being God. He has all power, everything at his, his, his will and command. He, he is the Lord. Jesus is the most free. Yet he doesn't use his freedom to his own advantage. Or another verse says he doesn't grasp his equality with God. The next verse actually says, as the most free, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If you were God and you had all the freedom in the world, is that what you would do with it? Like, that's crazy. Jesus is in that position, yet he uses his freedom to become the greatest servant. He becomes human. He becomes limited. He becomes weak. He takes on our sin, and he goes to a cross where even his arms are pinned. He, he loses all freedom and dies willingly. That's crazy. Yet the poem doesn't finish there. It says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It doesn't end in death. It doesn't end in the low place. God works on Jesus' behalf and now has given him the name above every name. So you see this same principle at work in Jesus' life. He's free, yet he becomes a servant, and yet God lifts him up. 
It's this principle of actually how do we use freedom. It's true in Jesus' life, in his incarnation. It's true in Jesus' death. And then even how Jesus approaches this issue of tax. Right? He, he, he will lay down his freedom for the sake of others. And this is really a redefinition of how we think about freedom and a new understanding even of the purpose of freedom and what it's for. Because it's so normal for us to think freedom is something to be defended. Freedom is something for our own use. Freedom is when we assert our own rights. But Jesus does the exact opposite of that. Jesus uses his freedom for others. Jesus doesn't cling to his freedom. Now, I'm not saying defending freedom is not important, but I'm saying this is a redefinition of how we think about freedom. So taking that principle then, I just want to spend some time thinking, well, what does that look like in our life? And how do we apply that to ourselves? Because we were slaves, but now we are free. Matt shared about this before. Our story is Israel's story. We're part of the people of God. And the, the story of the Bible is about a people who were slaves that God set free by his mercy and his grace. That's the Passover. God God is a God who sets slaves free. God cares deeply about freedom. And that's our story. We were slaves to sin, to death. We were without God, without hope. Yet Jesus came, took our sin, died in our place so that we could be free, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could know him. It's not that we have to earn salvation. It's not that we rescue and save ourselves. We are slaves. We are dead, but we've been set free. We have freedom in Christ. And this is so important in the Bible and and is something that needs to be guarded. Um, And Paul guards this in the New Testament, particularly in Galatians, because in the book of Galatians, there's this danger of um, this group, this church going back to thinking they have to keep the Jewish laws, that they have to be Israelites, they have to be circumcised, they have to follow these, these rules and regulations, and Paul guards against it, and he says they must stand on their freedom. He says this in chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again to a yoke of slavery. Freedom is so important in this freedom in Christ. The fact that it's Christ who is enough. He forgives us. We trust him. We don't put ourselves under the law. We trust and follow him in the freedom that is his. This is an important principle in Scripture. But then also freedom is, like I said, an important value in our society. And we have freedom as Christians, spiritually and with God in our relationship with him. But also as just people who live in Australia, we enjoy a lot of freedoms. We have freedom of speech. We have freedom of religion. We can practice what we can preach right now. Like we can gather. And, and we know and value these freedoms. And even lots of people who are not Christians in our society value those freedoms. And they actually come from very much so a Christian heritage and worldview of human rights and equal dignity of people made in the image of God. So we value freedom. Yet, sometimes we can think that freedom is the ultimate thing. That freedom is to do whatever we want to say whatever we want, to to push whatever we want, to not ever have to limit ourselves in any way. Yet that's not the way Jesus expresses freedom. So we are free. We were slaves and we are free, yet we are called to actually lay down our freedom for the sake of love. Actually, the purpose of freedom 
is to love. And love involves limiting freedom. It's so interesting, right? So if you just have unlimited freedom, if you just do whatever you want all the time, don't commit to anything, that is a life devoid of love. Because love involves commitment. Love involves limits. Love involves stopping for the other. That's a limiting of freedom. But actually, freedom is for the purpose of love, to not do whatever we want. To actually live a life where you just do whatever you want all the time and have no limits and no restrictions, that's actually slavery. Unlimited freedom is not freedom. Freedom is for the purpose of submitting and loving. Um, Paul, uh, Paul, again, mentions this to the Galatians later in the letter. He says it this way, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Freedom is not for the purpose of doing whatever we want all the time and, and, and indulging selfish desires. That's not freedom. Um, freedom is to be like God and to love and to fulfill our purpose in being his image bearers. He says here they are to use their freedom to serve others humbly in love. Michael Wilkins, um, Bible commentator, puts it really succinctly and really well, I thought. He says it this way, True freedom does not mean the unrestricted ability to do whatever we want, but the ability to sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. Jesus redefines freedom as actually sacrificial service and love. From a place of freedom, not from a place of duty and obligation and control. He didn't have to do that. He's free, yet freely chooses to lay down and serve. But again, not in, without hope. It's not a limiting of freedom, thinking that that's the end. It's not a limiting of, of, of maybe things that we want or want to see just for the sake of others and thinking that we're going to miss out. It's actually that in the process, we experience God's presence and power. Jesus lays down his life, but God raises him from the dead. Peter um, and Jesus pay this temple tax, not to offend, but they have this provision of God. Again, this is a principle in Scripture of actually our job is to lower ourselves and God raises us up. We see this in 1 Peter 5. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. We, we humble ourselves, lay ourselves down. We're not to be the ones who just pursue our own freedom and grasp at it at all costs. Actually, we use our freedom to lay it down knowing that God will be at work in that and will raise us up. It's such, and I think this is so important because it's a, it's a different understanding of freedom to a Western individualist culture that has so high value on the individual of the freedom to, to not have limits. And in many ways, we're kind of trained that freedom is the removal of limits. And limits are bad. Anything that limits you is the problem. But actually, limits are the place to grow in love. So what I want to do before we, before we finish is kind of, again, take that principle and just get a bit more specific in some application, because I think this can really shift the way we view some things in our, in our world and our culture and our, in our lives. Um, the first one is just family. And I also want to talk about freedom within the limitations of family, because if you think about someone you want to think about someone who our culture and world would say is free, you probably don't think of a parent, right? Like, people were, pe were free before they had kids, and now you have kids, and you're not free anymore, right? There's, there's, 
bondage to kids, right? And, and in some ways, like, we joke about that, but in, in some ways, that is actually how people seem to think about family and, and parenting, that, that life was good before, we could do whatever we wanted before, but now we've got kids and we can't do much at all. And, and we just have to endure this until they go. And, and, and in some ways, people approach that and, and, and talk about parenting almost as a type of punishment or prison. And there is limitations, right? And there is challenges, um, but there is also freedom in the midst of that. It's actually a place to express this version of freedom, the freedom to love and to grow in love. On this, Mark Sayers says this, marriage and family life push us towards God, away from the radical individualism of today toward the servanthood of Christ. Actually, there's opportunity in marriage, in parenting, which involves limiting freedom, to actually grow in the freedom to love, to actually grow in the expression of freedom that Jesus has, of laying it down for the sake of the other. This is, again, a redefinition. It's not, it's not just a limitation, but there's actually freedom within the limitation. It's actually a free choice to serve, and actually that is true freedom, to express love in service. I think this is also relevant um, for singleness and celibacy. Because again, there's, there's this idea in, in our culture of freedom is good, not being bound. So maybe being single and not being married is good. But then the idea of therefore being celibate, that doesn't sound like freedom, right? But biblically, that's, that's the requirement. If we're going to follow God and are not married, there's a need to embrace this limitation of celibacy, which does not sound like freedom at all in our culture that so highly values sexual expression. But Jesus, again, would say that 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 unrestrained freedom is actually not freedom. Actually, submitting ourselves to God and His way is actually true freedom that can be found in recognizing actually God is ultimate. Uh, Mark Sayers says it this way, celibacy and abstinence can be a rebellion against the culture of sexual modernity which elevates sex beyond its created station. Instead, the biblical vision of abstinence leads to an infilling of God. The content single testifies to this truth. God satisfies. He is enough. Again, some people might see romance, sex as ultimate, to to have to be limited from those things in some way as a form of punishment or slavery, but actually there's opportunity to grow in love to grow in faithfulness to God, to grow in service, to honor God and show that God is enough, God is worthy. Actually, God's ways are good. There's actually freedom in embracing those limitations. Another one that I thought of, um, which I thought is freedom within the limitations of aging. Obviously, it feels a bit strange for me to talk about this, and there's lots of older people in our, our congregation, so I thought this is, this is a relevant application of this principle. I was actually at a seminar the other day with Keith Farmer, who's a great um, retired pastor and a mentor, and he's an author now, and he talked about how growing older, he's in his 80s, as he's grown older, life just closes in. And, and he said life closes in on him, and it's, and it's difficult. It gets smaller, it gets harder, limitations increase, there's less freedom. And he actually said, uh, which was pretty profound and, and intense. He said it takes a miracle of God not to become grumpy 
because of these difficulties, right? That God has to do a deep work in someone's heart, which is amazing because we've got a great, amazing congregation of people who are not grumpy. So it's a lot of miracles, which is great. And that's true. <laughs> but I think, there's, again, in our culture, we would say, right, if freedom and being able to do whatever you want at any time, that's the ultimate. So then aging is a limiting of freedom, which is just seen as a negative or as a problem or as something to be pushed back on as much as possible. But what does it look like to embrace those limitations with this posture of actually a way to grow in love, actually a way to grow in service? As one of our church members I was talking to um, a couple of months ago who's... who's in her 80s, and, and um, said something amazingly profound to me. Um, yeah, we're, we're doing lots of things in the church at the moment, which is, which is awesome. There's lots of events happening and, and things happening, and there's a sense of momentum. And, but she came up to me and said, there's all this stuff happening in the church, but I actually can't come to much of it because uh, it's just too hard to get out. Um, I'm getting older, and, and, it's, and it's difficult, so I can't come, but I can pray. And she said, I can pray. And then she said, I was having a conversation with one of my friends, and uh, we were talking about maybe that's why we're still here, so that we can pray. And that was an amazing thing. I was blown away by that. To say in the trials, in the limitations, in the difficulties of aging, this person was in a posture of how do I love other people? And actually, all I can do is pray. There's actually a huge opportunity to grow in love, to grow in faith, to honor and glorify God within the limitations of aging. And actually the faith that maybe it takes to face those difficulties, he would say is worth more than gold. There's huge opportunity and in those limitations where our culture might say that just any limitations is wrong. Actually, this redefinition is so powerful that we can actually embrace the limitations of family, singleness and celibacy, aging, and actually be countercultural. And when we do... It's not without hope. It's not just a limiting of freedom, but it's a limiting of freedom with the trust that God works, that God raises, that God notices, that God sees. And ultimately, we will have to embrace the limitation of death, but we do that with the hope of resurrection, that God is present and will raise us. Because we follow Jesus, and Jesus is the most free, But as the most free, he became the greatest servant. And as the greatest servant, he has the highest name. And the only reason we are free is because of that. It's because he did that. Without that, we would be slaves. We would be hopeless. We would be dead. But someone who had incredible freedom gave it up for us. So how do we use our freedom How do we use it to serve others? Whether it's on a really small issue in comparison to Jesus' life and death and mission of temple tax. Dealing with an issue with somebody, how do we, as much as possible, seek to limit ourselves to not offend, to, to love and think about the other? And then on the big things, how do we not just assert our freedom and seek to grasp to everything we can, but lay ourselves down in love, trusting that God's at work? So I'm going to pray, and then then we'll respond um, as worship today. I just thank you, Jesus, for for who you are. Um, 
say, who is like you? You are holy. There's no one like you in your glory. There's no one like you in your humility. There's no one like you in your victory and your position as, as king. Just thank you, you are at work in our hearts and lives in every season, and nothing is too hard for you. And we just ask, God, that, yeah, you would give us grace to follow you, uh, the king who serves, who has victory in death. Lord, in the limitations that we face, when we're tempted to simply rebel against them, um, to complain about them, to even maybe run away from them, would you give us grace to use our freedom to serve, to lay ourselves down in love, in hope that you will raise us, that you will work through us. We ask for wisdom, Lord, even in our world, in the ways that we interact. God, give us grace to represent you, Jesus, well and serve you and be an example to a world of true freedom and true life that's found in you. We just pray this in your name.